0: Welcome to the Connectomics Podcast. Here we talk to theorists and practitioners about how notions of embodiment can help us to connect an understanding of ourselves with an understanding of the cultural, technological, and ecological worlds of which we are part. I'm your host, Mark Michael James. I'm a cognitive scientist and philosopher at the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology in beautiful Okinawa, Japan. Please join me to connect with our guest for today in just a moment. Back to the podcast. Our podcast guest for this, the ninth episode, is Andrea Hoyt. Andrea is a writer, a neuroscientist, and a philosopher, and she's presently pursuing a PhD under the supervision of Dr. Thomas Fuchs in Heidelberg in Germany. Thomas, who many of you listening will be familiar with. Um, So why did I invite Andrea on the podcast? Well, I met Andrea last year at a conference, well, initially actually at a workshop that me and Tom Froese were hosting, um, but later throughout a conference that we were both attending uh, on phenomenology and the emotions in Heidelberg in Germany last year. And we had some good chats there. And as part of those chats, Andrea really emphasized to me that she was Developing or working on an approach to understanding cognition primarily as a means of navigation, or of what she calls way-making. This approach to cognition I wanted her to come on and speak about, and indeed that ends up being the main topic of our conversation. But in, dare I say, making our way, we pass through a bunch of interesting related topics including philosophical or epistemological perspectivalism, process philosophy, how experience and adoption of particular epistemic frames uh, relate to each other, how a history of experience, you might say, um, and convergences between our own life experiences and how they appear to be manifest in our thinking and how we approach the world. And I should say, a bunch of other stuff. Uh, this was a, this was genuinely a fun conversation. I really feel a kindred spirit in Andrea, and I feel like we could have talked for uh, multiple hours more. Uh, what I was left with, though, was, um, I think, you know, leaving this conversation and listening back, uh, a sense for the power of metaphor. Uh, even and maybe even particularly so in our scientific life, um, metaphors not only help us get a grip on the world around us, but they invite us into certain modes of inquiry. Um, the metaphor of na- navigation is is genuinely a powerful one, uh, and uh, f- for a multitude of reasons, as we get into in the podcast. But what has kind of remained with me is the sense of situatedness that it fosters. We are not in this metaphor, very obviously, um, you know, the, say, mediators of a controlled hallucination, but agents making our way in the world. Um, And there's something transformative about that, something worth, dare I say, um, continuing to pursue... (laughs) uh one could go, dare I say, a long way with these uh, way-making navigational metaphors. And in a sense, that's kind of the point. Um, before getting into our conversation, I want to let you know that we're going to be changing the name as some of the general framing of the podcast. Uh, I'll talk a bit more about that very soon, but... Uh, Briefly, the name of the podcast is changing to Learning to Care. And I'm doing that because I want the, you know, the emphasis to be a bit more targeted um, within the podcast, the kinds of conversations we have and so on. And what I want to look at, uh, because this is kind of core to my work and my interests, um, is understanding the science uh, philosophy and practice of what we might broadly think about as balancing balancing care across different scales. So care for ourselves, care for each other, care for the planet. So in it, we're going to be taking both a kind of critical look at, for instance, things like the wellness industry and its relationship to things like systematic uh, concerns, like, I don't know, the climate crisis, um or more general, more localized, but still nevertheless structural and or systematic concerns. <clears throat> but we won't be stopping at the critique. you know the the whole ambition of the podcast uh, will be to explore with our guests um, alternative possible futures um, and how those futures uh, become aligned across scales of what we do in our individual lives and so on uh, feeds or contributes in complex uh, ways, obviously, but, you know, wondering if we can look at some of those traces to what we do at scale and whether taking care at a local level equates to, or how it might equate to also taking care uh, more globally or universally. Um, Excitingly, I might also have a co-host joining me, but more about that some other time just before we start here i just want to say that we really do appreciate your support and hope you're enjoying the show Um, we hear from a lot of you that indeed you are so that keeps us going if you haven't already please consider subscribing to our podcast so you never miss one and if you're enjoying the show we'd be really grateful if you could leave us a review Your reviews do help us reach more listeners and really uh, get to more people Um, and spread the word. If you know somebody who might be interested, uh, you know somebody who uh, needs needs a little bit more connection, needs a little bit more uh, learning to care going forward, a little bit more care or maybe a little bit more learning, um, yeah, spread the word, please. And I think that's it. Without further ado, I bring you a conversation I had with Andrea Hoyt sometime in, I believe, December of last year. And it took us a while to get this one out, just there's so many things going on. But here it is. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. So how is, uh, where are you?
1: I'm in the Netherlands, actually. We're moving here. So this is like a Airbnb. It's kind of not my, but it's very colorful and nice. But um, I'm in Zeist. You ever heard of it? It's near no. Utrecht. It's about 40 minutes from Amsterdam. Okay. Yeah.
0: And that's where you're moving to? That's yeah, where moving.
1: we were looking for a place. We found a place. Starts like December, mid-December. I still have my place in Germany too, but my partner okay. needs to. will be working here and stuff, so it's only like four four hours uh, drive, okay. which for an American is not that bad. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. For someone living in Okinawa, that sounds like you know five trips around the island. So it's enough. absolutely. Well,
1: I think it's the same for Holland because everything here is like one hour away from everything else. So when I say, yeah, my house is only four hours from here, people are like, what?
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's funny that, right? Like space compresses and then the space within the space expands somehow. It is, it's, it's right. relative,
1: right? Space and time. I remember yeah, the, yeah, sure. we moved a lot when I was a kid. And I remember the first time we moved, which was only like 45 minutes away from my grandparents, right? But when we would go visit my grandparents, who I'd lived basically right beside of till then, I would like pack snacks and my pillows and like blankets because 45 minutes felt like huge, right? Because I'd never been so far. And now it's like, whatever, yeah, yeah. drive that to the airport. But back then it was like, I felt like I was going on a day trip, you know, have to like take my stuffed animals, get some snacks.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. I know, yeah. We used to joke that I grew up in a peninsula in the west of Ireland. We used to joke that, like, if you were going to the nearest town, which was even, it was like 30 minutes away, but, like, you'd warn the neighbors a week in advance. (laughs) Exactly.
1: That's how it was for me until we moved, yeah. (laughs) It's funny, though. It really changes, you know, just based on experience. I guess that's a matter of patterns, right? The patterns you get used to.
0: (laughs) yeah sure sure and then I mean if you're in somewhere like Australia you know where you have to fly to work kind of thing or I guess parts of the states too you know you're kind of used to big long hauls
1: yeah yeah it's pretty normal there I mean a lot of people drive an hour to work so
0: right right Um, well this is kind of a interesting lead into what (laughs) <laughs> aims to be our conversation anyway right so right,
1: space and time
0: <laughs> right so it hasn't been a bad starting point but um we've met before just to give our listeners a bit of a sense we met uh, recently at a conference in heidelberg had some good chats uh, and you at that time were reflecting on I guess it's what is to be your phd project you yes yeah. right that's
1: um, <clears> true. I'm, I'm starting oh, yeah. it. I'm already doing it. Yeah.
0: Okay. So you're how far in? You're just started or you're...
1: Uh, I'm just starting uh, more or less, but actually it's kind of for me something I've been working on for a long time and I'm actually doing the PhD just more to formalize it. So it's kind of you know a larger philosophy or perspective that I've been working on in different ways, not the most traditional, a little bit unorthodox. But just for the sake of, like, rigor and to kind of really test everything, I wanted to actually do it in in an academic environment. And so that's what I'm doing. But, yes, as far as, like, research and writing and thinking, I've been doing this quite a while. Um, but actually writing yeah. the PhD with Tomas Fuchs in Heidelberg, uh, that's just starting.
0: Yeah, okay. So, yeah, just so to, to kind of... Um... Yeah, set the scene here a little bit, and so the the topic of your PhD or the general orientation is to really bring a kind of relatively novel, from my my experience at least, uh, understanding of cognition to our understanding of what cognition is. Right. So right. you have in mind the notion of cognition as a form of navigation, and I guess we can we can start to tease that out and come mm-hmm. back to it. But that's just to kind of set us up. But I guess our listeners would be super interested to hear about what your background is. You said that you've been working on this for a while, so I guess within some formal capacity that has been the case. Um, Yeah, maybe you can just tease out some of that for us and bring us back to this idea eventually of cognition as navigation.
1: Sure. Um, I mean, that is itself kind of an example of (laughs) of this idea (laughs) of navigation. But yes, um, I mean, early on when I first did my... Uh, bachelor's which was over a decade ago actually I was already interested in like trying to think of mind as somehow relative to movement and action and finding some kind of way of thinking of cognition as as active but also um, as a behavior right Uh, so I my that early work I did a lot with uh, Hegel but I also studied, like, physics and science, and I was trying to put these ideas together, and so I've been thinking about it uh, since then, but I also did a lot of unorthodox uh, research and study. For example, I worked in Mongolia for some years um, on different historical projects. Um, I've studied different kinds of history. I have degrees in uh, other subjects, and, you know, I've also studied technology a lot. It's a big interest of mine. But all these kind of pursuits have always been through this framework of like, how can we understand cognition in a different way? And how and mostly, I mean, a lot of my studies was also have also been environmental, like place related, like how does place change thought and feeling and memory? Um, So I was also really trying to connect ecologically, cognition, mind. How do we think of it ecologically? Um, So I've. That's just kind of been my trajectory um, in many different ways. Uh, I've moved a lot. I've lived in a lot of different places. I've studied a lot of different subjects. I've written books on <laughs> things like art, but also things like automobiles. Um, but for me, it's always framed through this idea of how do we make our way in the world? Like, How do we navigate? What is that? And uh, how does that relate to how we build the patterns of our thought feeling memory yeah so you know cognition in general but also more specific like mind-based questions
0: yeah yeah i mean there's so much in there i I was looking for a pen and a notepad as you were speaking lots of things that i'd like to get back to yeah Um, but maybe uh yeah so you said that it was there was something about movement in particular movement and I guess that brings in the body straight away yeah that kind of piqued your interest here a little bit was it the fact that you were involved in some sort of physical practice was it the critique of existing paradigms was it just coming across embodied literature was it a combination of all of those things I mean I guess like you know the notion of movement is kind of present for people, but then there's an abstra- another le- level or two of abstraction before we get to something like navigation. So sure. I guess that evolved over time. But yeah, was that starting point um, maybe a little more definitive?
1: Yeah, I think it goes back to that I've always been interested in pursuits that people often see as um, oppositional. Or that, for example, you shouldn't be interested in analytic philosophy and continental philosophy. (laughs) Or, you know, you should choose one. Or you shouldn't be... uh, It's changed a bit, you know, in the past decade. But at that time, it was more like you either choose neuroscience, which I was interested in, or the study of the brain, or you choose philosophy. And I sort of wanted to do both, you know. Um, So I, I I feel like what I was really trying to do was find a different way, something that was... In common um, to, for example, mental, physical, spiritual, virtual, social. Um, and I think over time, I've just sort of found this paradigm of navigation or waymaking, is what I call it. Um, to be something that you can you can really use to approach uh, how we understand thought, feeling, and memory from any of those angles um, without having to kind of like judge them, right, and say, if you read certain uh, writers um, in one tradition, then you can't also uh, use uh, the work from another tradition. Um, I feel like uh, mm-hmm. the paradigm I've been trying to kind of build over this time or even just like um, research and discover from other people's writing is a way of doing that, right? like movement, not only physical movement, but mental, you know, movement, how we grow, how we change perspective. Um, yeah, but also social, right? How we find our way through social encounters, <laughs> how we learn how to communicate better. Um, and also with ourself, right? How we learn <laughs> how to deal with our own um, patterns and change them. And so I guess I just found navigation to be the right framework for that. But it's definitely been a lot of my own movement physically mentally and spiritually right my own reading and discussing these subjects with others um so yeah i i'm not sure if that really answers how movement in a broad sense goes to navigation more specifically but
0: yeah i don't know if it's so for me i get i get that in a super intuitive way i mean Mm -hmm. There's there's some sort of eerie similarities, it seems, between our own histories. You know, my, yes. my own mm-hmm. history was one of practice, too, and art and been involved in a lot of different groups and then traveling a lot. And I guess, in a way, the way making perspective emerges or the navigation when you see there are so many routes to the one place, in a sense. Exactly. Like the classic old... Old fable of you know there's many routes up the mountain, and <clears throat> when you find yourselves invested and inculcated in so many different ways, it starts to seem like well there's all these separate paths, right? But in some sense, um, we're often orienting it towards similar things. Exactly. And yeah. Is is it the flex the flexibility of the navigational frame as waymaking then emerges? I guess because it it helps validate all of those different perspectives.
1: Right. Without needing to pit them against each other, but also allowing them to have their differences. Right. I mean, I feel like that's a very hard thing to allow things to be different and even at times seem oppositional from a particular position without having to like mm. cast them in this dichotomous framework. Right. Um, where you choose, mm. you have to choose one or the other, which is kind of how we're I mean, that's the Cartesian kind of <laughs> trajectory, right, that we, that's even part of our language and the way we, we discuss a lot of things. So I guess I'm trying to break out of that. But what you say, I think, is really, really uh, makes a lot of sense to me because it sounds like you two were kind of forced to see the world from a lot of different perspectives. I mean, I moved a lot as a kid, for example. And when you go to a new school and you realize like, OK, everything that was cool in my old school <laughs> is like uncool here, right? Or, you know, I mean, there's all these kind of weird shifts where you're just like, oh, the world is like not actually just one way. It kind of depends on what social group you're used to. You learn that, right? If you move a lot as a kid or um, even if you're just reading a lot of different kinds of books, you're curious, right? You see that there's all these different perspectives and um, it can be sort of jarring, right? You want to almost just choose one so you feel part of something. Um, and I mm-hmm. think, yeah, that process can be so potent and painful and wonderful. and I think, yeah, a lot of what I've been trying to figure out with waymaking is trying to figure that out, right? How to hold all these positions <laughs> um, in a way that that yeah, makes sense.
0: Right, the question comes up of how do you make your way when there's so many ways to make right? Exactly. So many possible ways. Yeah. <laughs> In a sense, it's the question of meaning. It's you know, the death of God. Right. It's it's the meaning crisis. So many so many things kind of uh, inform this kind of discussion. Yeah, one interesting to say favorite... that.
1: Yeah, Nietzsche. This perspectivalism. Right. You said the death of God, mm. and this makes me think of Nietzsche, and um, a lot of that perspectivalism, like that has kind of come out of that tradition, which doesn't really reference Nietzsche so much anymore, but like um, Massima, I can't remember, you know, this this idea of many different perspectives. Yeah, perspectival realism, yeah. Mm-hmm. right, right. In Guerra yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, I really like that stance. And it seems to be a stance that, um, you know, people with the kind of history you've just described feel uh, well accommodated within, you know, including myself, um, and I, I think there's, yeah, there's, I mean, maybe we can get back to this and maybe the political implications or whatever, all the kind of cultural and more interesting implications, but can you bring us back to the notion of way making in general and maybe talk about how you see it as relevant to, you know, something like cognition broadly understood, but maybe something like behavior or memory or perception?
1: Sure. Um, I think... F- it helps for me to ground it in something I think of as the ecological orientation. And that's uh, not something I came up with. That's a term I use, but I think it actually includes a lot of these traditions like the one we were just talking about, perspectivalism, but also um, more like ecological traditions like Gibson, this kind of stuff that people are more familiar with, but also uh, wider like uh, Rachel Carson's idea that, We are a part of uh, nature and what we do is nature and affects nature. These kind of um, nested nestedness um, or Gregory Bateson or I mean, really, you can find a kind of ecological perspective regardless which discipline you go to. And I think that I way making sort of starts in that tradition where it's. that's how I'm grounding this idea of navigation. I call it waymaking because navigation is such a specific term in neuroscience. You probably know, which is uh, what I studied. Um, there's like navigation, wayfinding, all these things. But waymaking just sort of includes every everything, right? How we make our way through what we find ourselves in, through the encounter, which mm. is navigation, but it's broader. Um, so that I feel like... If you think of that as ground as as part of this ecological orientation, where we're actually just kind of trying to understand how we're becoming aware of what we're part of and also what's part of us, which is what I think all these different ecological um, orientations have in common, then you understand mm-hmm. waymaking as, okay, it's just measurement from a, a perspective or a position of this encounter that we're in and how... That itself is like how we make our way through whatever we're trying to make our way through. Like physically, yes, the body has to kind of sensorily process whatever it it encounters uh, to kind of move physically. But you can also think of it mentally, right? If you're reading a book, you're processing, or you're 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 finding patterns and so on in this, in a similar way. Socially, you know. So waymaking can kind of uh, be applied to any of these, like, different landscapes. Um, But I think for me, really, it goes back to this ecological orientation, which for me would be about, okay, waymaking, but also nestedness instead of dichotomy, which kind of goes into the complex systems way of thinking, where instead of thinking of opposites, as I was talking about before, you think of kind of scale and nestedness. Um, I think that's more ecological, right? You find that in writers like Rachel Carson, who's talking about us as part of a larger ecology, but you also find it in like really specific philosophical um, texts. So yeah, if you just think of the ecological orientation and then waymaking is kind of a way of discussing that, um, that I think applies to all these different disciplines and perspectives. Um, and it's like very much connected to nestedness and also to kind of uh, what I call like like expanded expansive thinking or transformative thinking where you're actually sort of trying to um, yeah understand other positions than the aside from just the one that you already feel like you inhabit.
0: Yeah. Right. So s- something that comes to mind, and may, I'd be interested to hear your comment here is um, in an act of, frame, they often leverage the notion of sense-making. And it sounds like you're doing a similar uh, kind of bait and switch of the notion of cognition for uh, Um, way-making. And I wonder if you see subtle distinctions there. Part of my own challenge with the notion of sense-making has been that it typically refers to the process of maintenance of a particular stability, if you will. Uh, and hasn't always, hasn't always, at least in in the kind of technical unfolding of it, allowed for novelty in such an easy understanding, or you know the precise relationality or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it seems like the the way making approach is already more ecological, even just in terms of the language, right? The the kind of the 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 fact that you're moving from a position into something else. <laughs> but then I wonder, does that necessarily open up a kind of a, a a kind of teleology, which is is there already in an action, right? We we we're acting with respect to some of our goals, but the way making for me has a kind of a and maybe you can disabuse me of this somewhat, but it has the like you said you were Hegelian earlier on, right? So <laughs> there is a I
1: didn't say it was Hegelian. I just said <laughs> that was my early uh thesis, yeah
0: okay okay (laughs) there's a difference (laughs) so yeah is there a sense of like we're we're making our way towards something or is it just that we're making our way towards the resolution of the tensions that arise and our concerns and goals yeah
1: that's a great question and i think that's why i brought up this idea of nestedness right and position because yes of course like there's always a trajectory um but we're so used to thinking in this dichotomous way that we think there's a beginning and an end, right? So there must be some kind of teleology that's somehow objective. And I think that is really the hard point, right? Because somehow we have this ecological orientation, I think is what I'm trying to present to show expresses a different view from that. It's not about beginnings and ends. It's not about opposites, Somehow it's an ongoing dynamic process that we have to try to learn how to think of without putting it in any kind of container, which is very hard for us. Um, Mm. And once you do that, and, you know, perspectivalism tries to address this too, then you realize from every position relative to every other position, you will always have a trajectory. It doesn't mean it's uh, teleological in an objective sense. It's just that from that perspective... However, that perspective is moving through whatever it's encountering, be it a human or a cell or whatever, there's, of course, a trajectory relative to the other positions. But that doesn't mean that if you move to a different position, the trajectory will be the same or even have exactly the same parameters. Of course, there's a shared overall dynamic movement because you don't have gaps between positions. But you know, just in the same way that, you know, we were talking about these different paths, you can have incredibly, incredibly different paths that don't share a lot of regularities, but actually do kind of have a similar pattern or trajectory um, relative Mm -hmm. to the whole. So I think that's a very hard way to think, and it's what we try to learn with complex systems and all of this, like we're trying to get there. How do we get out of this linear way of thinking? But I do think there's a way in which, from every perspective, you can imagine a kind of teleology or trajectory. I don't think teleology is the right word, but relative to what we're going through in our lives, for example, there is a a way in which we're going to have more clarity or more connection, um, which is kind of what we want. It's what life wants. Um, You know, if we want to get into big questions of why that is and so on, we're going to end up in a kind of state of awe, which I think is okay. But if we're just trying to understand uh, really basic things that matter to our daily lives, um, I think we can just understand it as we're trying to make our way. And there's many different trajectories. But yes, like we can understand that relative to wanting connection and clarity and these kinds of things, there might be one trajectory that's better, you know, so to speak. But it doesn't mean that another person's trajectory should look like that um, exactly. I don't know if that makes makes much sense but but the sense making I do want to really that's a good uh, I I definitely am very um, moved by a lot of inactive literature and I really feel like this is um, very close to all of these ideas I wouldn't say that like way making is inactive just for the reasons we've been talking about because I think you could see it many different ways but this idea of sense making I mean it is kind of what I'm talking about right like the body is a sensory body, and it is, um, from our kind of reflective position, making sense of everything that it encounters, and that is a kind of waymaking. Um, yeah, but, you know, I also think Maturana and Varela were already sort of trying to do a little perspectivalism. You know, cybernetics has a lot of that. Uh, early Varela, this not one, not two idea. You know, that's also this kind of I think a lot of people are really trying to find a way to think about ecological, uh, ecological cognition. Like, but it's very hard, right? Because we're in a position. So it's hard to then understand how there are so many other positions and how can we um, how can we talk about that? Right. Without it fitting into a linear model.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's so much there. I I've I've just recently purchased a book that I haven't got around to reading, but I bought it on the on the um the on the blurb, the blurb was something along the lines of um you know, we're we're limited beings in an infinite universe and uh, any phenomena that we might have some interest in there's going to be multiple perspectives on it. Um and multiple right perspectives, right? Giving the way you're trying to make in a sense. Um, but that evokes, I suppose, in a, in, a, in a scientific culture, in a scientific mind, uh, in a kind of, you know, received worldview. Uh, it's challenging, I think, in that to maintain the realism dimension. It's 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 more easy to maintain the perspectivalism. Um, the realism, I don't know if it holds in the same way anymore, or how we have, uh, you know, validation criteria, how we start to understand what it is precisely that science is doing, unless we come into this kind of more compatibilist framing uh, as the general framing within which science is done in the first place.
1: Yes, I think that's why I went back and studied neuroscience in a way, was because um, there is something about Like we can understand these ideas in a big way, but we really also need some way to systematize them or to study them um, in ways that can somehow actually help us communicate across positions, which ends up being somehow like a mathematical model or, you know, a lot of what you guys are doing there, actually, where you're really trying to find some kind of technological or computational or, you know, um, some way of actually formalizing some of these ideas. So yeah, that's, uh, I, I studied neuroscience and I studied memory in the hippocampus. Um, and I think this actually, for example, provides one sort of way into that because the hippocampus of course is known for memory, but it's also known for navigation. So you can kind of look at that. Um, there's a lot of different models, computational models and so on coming in the last five years, which try to understand thinking, memory, and navigation in this kind of scaled or nested way, right? So I think we're getting there. I think a lot of like complex systems, a lot of what you're doing there, I mean, we're trying to find new models for for how to understand this um, and talk about this perspectivalism or this like ecological way or, of orientation but it is really hard to get out of this dichotomous mindset you know where um i think like relative to the point you just made that what's what feels uh hard is that um we need some way to address like really everyday sort of problems and just it feels like in our everyday life that we are very separate from <laughs> everything around us and that positions are very different and of course like that's at the heart of a lot of our problems, right? Politically and and so on. I mean, that there feels like there's always separation and and dichotomy. And um, how do we build sort of models in neuroscience and cognitive science that can actually somehow connect to everyday life in that way? Um, but I actually think it's uh, it's really possible. It's just that. How do we I think the question for me is how do we understand um like to get back to realism which you which you brought up that that we are obviously i mean this is for me the ecological orientation you can't get out of the movement and dynamism that includes everything that is the ecological right that many many authors have talked about as ecological from anthropology to philosophy, right they're all sort of trying to get at at what you're asking about like. How do we understand what's real and connected if we don't understand it as separate positions? you know? And that's why I think this ecological orientation where we try to under, understand that even though there are many different positions, they're all part of a dynamic movement, right? This I think this nestedness and complex systems helps us do that. And even the eruption theory and stuff, because... You know, you can think of it in your own body in the same way that all the cells in your body are separate positions if you want to measure them from the position of a cell, but they're also part of one body. Um, You know, there's no gap, right? It's just to get back to this nestedness depends on where you're going to measure from. Are you going to measure from the position of the cell or are you going to measure from the position of the human body or the position of like a social group or the position of a nation? All of those, just like we were saying, are going to look like the trajectories are going to be different, right? But I do think there's a way in which, just like in mathematical complex systems, those things are connected. It's just how do we find the framework to understand how they're connected? And that actually the whole point is that those positions learn how to share (laughs) their experience with one another, right? Uh, that that actually is what we're trying to do here with all of this. Um, so, yeah, it, yeah, it's hard because realism is already this dichotomous. It's like already assumes there's an opposite of realism, you know. <laughs> and I guess yeah. what I'm trying to just say with the ecological orientation is like, let's start with the understanding that we're awakening within something. We don't know what it is. Let's call it the ecological But there's no gaps, right? There's always a trajectory between my position and yours. It's just how do we find it?
0: Right, right. Yeah, I think the philosophy of Alfred North Whitehead has been helpful, at least to me, to kind of develop the kinds of intuitions that you're trying to stoke there as well. Um, There's somebody, I forget, is the author. I'm terrible for forgetting authors, but he talked about um, the kind of moment he grokked Whitehead's uh, metaphysics, or at least part of it. And Whitehead, of course, has the notion of cosmogenesis and the idea along the lines you're saying, right, we're all evolving together. And uh, this author described it, um, you know, coming coming to this intuition in a very strong sense, how we kind of recognize that what Whitehead is describing is this kind of, you know, simultaneous bursting into being in this very moment of all being. Right. right. And that this is a kind of ongoing process that we assume um, has a, a bookend and a forward end somewhere and that we're just moving between them. But actually, it's all contained here in the present. Right. And the navigation always happens in the present, even if we have some orientation towards the past, the future.
1: Absolutely. And the only way we can have a trajectory of past, present and future is through our social relations, through the way we react, we interact with other positions. So it it's actually a way of understanding that common, always present movement um, that fills, like um, it's somehow uh, has a trajectory or uh, that's static, but of course never does because it's always dynamic. But I love that you bring up Whitehead because I think that's another really huge um, thread of this ecological orientation idea. You know because I I mean, I haven't read him as deeply as I think you have, so I would really love to hear, like, even what cosmogenesis is. I don't actually know. Maybe you could tell me. But what I have read of him, and even more what I've read of people who have been influenced by him, like Mark Burkhardt and process philosophy and interactionism, and um, it's it's also trying to address the same thing that kind of (laughs) keeps me awake at night or whatever, or that has kind of motivated me all these years, is how do we really talk about this? dynamic process that we're all part of and we're also trying to kind of somehow understand more of right and he i Mm. think really made a huge uh leap kind of in finding language to to describe it because that's really what we're trying to do try try to find the right language to describe it that can maybe one day lead to us being able to model it you know Mm. um because we we kinda we we wanna understand it and then we can model it better uh in terms of with our technology, you know which I think is something we both are interested in but yeah what could you maybe cosmogenesis that's that has no beginning or end either right that's basically just this kind of ongoing dynamic change or or is it
0: yeah i I don't know so for whiteheads uh yeah, the, the 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 basic idea is that we're part of this ongoing evolution of the entire cosmos, right? And we're just invested in that and our own evolution and every thought and word we utter is part of that larger evolution uh, and geared into it in some way. I'm not entirely sure about whether or not he has a starting point, but he does think about um he has a very evolutionary count of the universe. Uh, which might imply that he does have a starting point but for whitehead something even like the laws of physics even like the the basic you know material constitu- constituents of the world um came into being through some sort of negotiation right and um <clears throat> he you know he continues that whole story of this kind of participatory negotiation um as uh, you know, the evolution of the cosmos into matter, into life, into human beings and so on. And for him, consciousness at the level of the human being, uh, this is a radical claim for some, but I think it's cons- consistent within Whitehead's uh, framework. Um, for him, the, that kind of consciousness that you find at the level of the human being is is. Perfectly continuous with this early negotiation, right? It's just a kind of flexibility that you don't find in this basic constituents of matter. But there's something continuous between experience and consciousness with something that's already present in matter. And for, for Whitehead, even in those material particles, those basic material particles, like whatever that consciousness is, is always already a relational thing too, right? So it's emerging in the interaction between the atoms. I was just thinking about this today right like because I had it, it, you know and oysters you know people of various persuasions and there's you know a lot of hardcore scientists quite reductionist because they need to be in some sense mm-hmm. to do some of the work they're doing and so on so you get into a lot of good conversations and one of the conversations I was having today was about this kind of thing and mechanism and you know mechanical universe and so on yeah. and uh, <clears throat> one thought that, that came to mind was <laughs> it was a bit of a ridiculous thought I know that but uh, it also felt somehow that it was getting at something interesting it was, um, you know, we talk about the basic constituents of matter as atoms, um, <clears throat> but we never talk about a single atom, right? There's no such thing as a single atom. Right. Great. So. So, so, the atoms are always in relationship, right or else there'd be atoms of the atoms kind of thing, and you'd eventually get one atom or something but that's never the case and i don 't think anybody wants to propose that 's the case so we're already talking about an ecological universe right even in a reductive frame if we are even if we're not fully acknowledging it
1: I think that's a great a really great point right, and it actually even kind of um points towards how we might somehow be able to get a grip on this right that we of course need to kind of create these seeming linear oppositional things like atoms right that are that's Mm -hmm. that's that's a label we give to positions but and we need to do that it is kind of we are reducing and we are using this mechanistic mindset and there's nothing wrong with that actually it's really a helpful tool you know Mm -hmm. but just as you said you can also we can also kind of take an go back to, go to another scale, right. Um, and see, okay, yes, but they're all, they all only make sense when we, um, Mm -hmm. study or measure them in relation to one another. Right. And also that's only one way that we can reduce it. We could also reduce it many other ways. Right. Um, and other kinds of beings could probably reduce it different ways. Uh, it's not that there's, like, some objective thing that is an atom. It's that that's a pattern of activity that we've named an atom in order to understand some larger relation, right? But also it's really interesting, you you talked about evolution a lot, and I wonder, you know, what your thoughts are on this. Like, does evolution itself, like, imply this kind of linear or teleological um model i mean it doesn't imply it but we seem to assume it right um even some of that needs to be rethought a little bit i guess you know
0: for whitehead it definitely didn't right whitehead had this image of like um he leveraged this image that james talked about a lot where he had this a skull from Borneo with all these things hanging off it and it was all kind of going in different directions and for Whitehead that was like a good encapsulation of the nature of this evolution right it's bursting off in all these different directions you know there's obviously very different accounts of the kind of macro evolutionary story and where it's heading and some people I mean you know mystics like Deschardins would say we're all heading to this absolute point where we you know reach some sort of uh, integrated enlightenment of all beings kind of thing. But then, I mean, more grounded accounts you know, will say, well, we're, we do seem to be working towards some sort of cooperation on a larger scale, and even if there's breakdowns in that at certain times, um, <clears throat> maybe there's some truth to that. But I, it's, it's really not a literature um, that I'm that familiar with, so I don't think I can comment too intelligibly there. But it does seem... Um, you know, someone maybe like uh, Swenson has made the case that which seems to fit somewhat with the Whiteheadian position that, um, you know, you have these thermodynamic uh, functions that um, give rise to these self-organizing dissipative structures that in turn give rise to forms of life and so on. I think a lot of stuff is lef- left out of the question in those kinds of still relatively deterministic accounts right consciousness for one thing doesn't seem to uh, have room in that story so much but um, well i think it matters
1: what we mean by consciousness i think that's another word that gets often confused with mind and i would say it's not the same thing as mind um i don't know what what you would think about that but
0: yeah i mean what's your what's what's your what's the distinctions you would make there
1: well, I guess I, I would try to go back to this idea of, of of waymaking in terms of what you were just talking about because I think it helps a bit to understand, like instead of trying to start with some definition of like what the world is or whatever, we can just understand like from some position we're trying to make our way through or that position is making its way through whatever it encounters. Um, if we can just kind of start there then I would say mind is is kind of the technology in a way of whatever that position sensory capabilities are. Um, And it would be different, of course, for a cell than for a human, than for a social group or whatever. Um, And I don't think that's the same thing as consciousness. Uh, I think through mind, we become conscious of our consciousness, if that makes sense. So I think often we use this term consciousness as if it means that we're aware of our own consciousness. But actually, I would say any kind of thing that can sense is conscious in a very, very, very basic way. It's like you can't really I don't see how we separate any kind of sensing from this very basic level of just conscious in the sense that you you are somehow sensing something other than your position, Right. I mean a cell has a membrane and all the stuff that's like sensing what from if we like put our positional measurement as a cell, what is for that cell, um, you know, its encounter. That for me is like sensing and very in life, right? And consciousness. But that's very different from being conscious of consciousness, <laughs> being reflective, being like that's not saying the cell is aware of its own sensing. It's sensing. Uh, But, you know, I think there's a distinction between uh, us being able to kind of reflect on our own consciousness, which I think we do through mind, like mind is something I think we've developed through waymaking to become aware of ourselves as conscious, you know, or not even only ourselves, but to get back to this ecological orientation, like, we are basically becoming conscious. We are life becoming conscious of life in a a way. We're not just, you know, becoming conscious of ourselves. It's like you were saying, you don't have one atom, you know. I mean, so that kind of consciousness is like, for me, reflective consciousness, different than just this very, very, very simple sensing, um, which I would also say is kind of consciousness. Um, And I would think of mind as... Or even cognition is basically like what we build through making our way through that encounter from this very basic conscious position. Um, So in that way, for me, mind and consciousness are not the same thing. It's more that mind is patterns, the patterns we build. um, Or it's probably better to even say cognition is the patterns we build through making our way through an encounter. So that can be pre-reflective, right? That's just... Like basic navigation, <laughs> um, but it's also cognition from any perspective or uh, position for me. And then you have uh, what I think of it as, as mind, which is our awareness of those patterns that we've developed to make our way in the world. So then you have a kind of reflective cognition. Uh, so I, I, that's kind of complex, but I do think it really helps to pull that stuff apart a bit because we talk about consciousness as if it's sensing, but also as if it's our awareness of ourselves, and then we mind somehow also just gets equated with consciousness. Um, but I really don't think it's helpful to talk about those all as one one thing, especially when we try to understand like this ecological orientation of what has cognition, for example, you know, and what has mind and what has consciousness. Those become uh, different answers, right? If we really think. Harder about what consciousness and mind are. But what do you think? Very I don't know. Sure.
0: I actually like your breakdown there. I mean, it it's, works quite well with the, say, Whiteheadian view, too, that there's something very basic, maybe we call it consciousness, Um <clears throat> And it evolves in a sense, and you know, it, it maybe it gives credence to this kind of perspectivalism we've been talking about before, right? So there's different traditions that have kind of targeted different features of this uh, triadic structure that you're describing. So you know, I mean, maybe uh, something like a psychotherapeutic, psycho- psychoanalytic tradition works more with what you were calling mind. A cognitive position works more with what you were calling cognition, and uh, maybe even something like you know, a more contemplative tradition like Buddhism has more interesting reflections on consciousness itself or maybe, you know, an intersection of all of those things. Um, I guess for us here in the unit, we definitely do have this distinction between what we think about as basic consciousness that is in the business of making a difference within otherwise determinate systems and we're kind of happy to maybe move some of the functionality that you talked about right in terms of mind right the kinds of tools that emerge whether that be through the habits of your body or the habits of your thought or whatever gets kind of offloaded to these relatively determinate patterns right we can still intervene in them in some way but they kind of just unfold by themselves a little bit too um, that seems to be more in line with what you're calling cognition, and then our ability to reflect on that relationship between the two seems to be more what you call in mind. Yeah, I think I'll have to, th- I think I'll have to think about it a bit more because you're just introducing me to it. But I do like the, dis- the distinctions. I mean, these 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 terms are notoriously difficult to kind of um, you know discipline anyway. But uh, it is nice to make some effort to do that, just even for ourselves to have some sort of shared language.
1: Yes. And I think if we try to do it with an ecological orientation, it does change a bit because one problem I have with a lot of inactive literature, it's not even a problem. Um, It's just like, it's very hard to get away from this dichotomous way of thinking where we already assume a kind of difference between um, physical and mental, for example, even as we say we don't. Um, So I really like what you were just saying, because I think like this making a difference or whatever, whatever you said, um, yeah, I think we can try to look at it from a, a perspective where, um, technology isn't an object, for example, um, technology is an action. And I think that kind of connects to, to understanding mind is an action, um, kind of in the way you were saying with the atom. The atom, we kind of objectify it or something, right? Um, but actually, it, we objectify it as a means of understanding it as an action. And I think, like, this is what we've done with, with mind. Um, we've kind of objectified this thing or as a, as a means of trying to understand what is actually this scaled, nested, dynamical action of, of consciousness or life or whatever, trying to, uh, or not trying to, but um, developing, right? Making its way. Uh, Becoming more aware of itself is one way you could say it, like in in a particular tradition, like maybe the meditative tradition, but also the philosophical tradition. Um, Or from a scientific point of view, maybe it's, you know, you would put it in a more practical kind of terminology, but in a sense, it's, for me, a similar action um, of trying to make our way through this encounter. And what I see as developing from that is mind and technology. And, you know, I don't see that those are as separate as we think they are. Um, Mm. You know, in a weird way, we've objectified mind um, and we've also sort of uh, objectified technology. Like we think that, Tech, we're not responsible for technology because it's somehow outside of us. Um, and I would try to connect it more to mine and say, no, actually, all of this is a scaled sort of process um, that that comes from, you know, the same the same kind of activity, which is this like trying to make our way through what we find ourselves in.
0: Yeah, yeah. Let's get back to the technology one in a second, and uh, 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 Verveki's notion of the psycho technology is resonating there with me as well. But um, just to come back to the consciousness thing, maybe we can kind of finish up uh, shortly on the technology question because I know both of us are interested, in that. Um, and maybe and maybe some uh, implications or applications of you know this way making uh, position. But so Thompson, uh, Evan Thompson, classically uses the the kind of metaphor of the, um, you know, cognition or consciousness, or I'm not quite sure what definition he would draw between those two. Um, but for him, it's something that emerges in the same way that uh, flight emerges in the relationship between the bird, its wings, and its environment. Um, and that seems to me kind of what you're suggesting there, right? This this relational, uh, I mean, it's even hard to, to call it something, <laughs> this <laughs> relational... You know, set of processes or whatever.
1: Um, well, that's so, that's beautiful. So, I love that that from Thompson. I love this and this idea of mind and life and being continuous with. I think all that I'm really on board with. I guess there's a little something different. I would say is like in the, in the example you just gave. Yes, the flight is the. Or how, how did you say it exactly again? The bird. Uh, the flight is the. Uh,
0: The flight is not in the bird as such. It's in the relationship between the wings and the bird and the environment.
1: Right. But then there's also this other level, which we've become aware of the flight. Do you know what I'm saying? So um, we're now sort of talking about flight as if it's an an object. But that itself is another kind of flight, you know? I mean, it's another activity or process. So I think that's where it gets, like, there's all these scales, right? It's not just... um, One or the other are linear so there's many many like it's all action right it's just that from some position we need to objectify it as the bird for example the bird is also action um and the flight is the action to understand it but from another position we could also understand the bird as a kind of action that has come ecologically so I guess what I'm saying is, can we find a way where we can still talk about things as linear, as objective, or as objects, not objective, um, as positions, as atoms, while at the same time we understand we're doing that heuristically? That's our way of trying to understand what is always dynamic action.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think actually, I kind of lose sight of it every now and again, but like, Whitehead really did develop a lot of tools to help us do this kind of think thing. Think so. Yeah. Weirdly, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like-
1: I'm not a Hegelian, but I think the thing I like about Hegel is that he he in in a way his writing sort of um, tries to like uh, demonstrate this action. So this weird kind of thing that we call dialectic and all of this. I mean, it's if you try to just think of it as a demonstration of this constant kind of switching and scaling of position that is possible and the way it's kind of always dynamically changing. I think you find that also in Marx, you find that in Nietzsche, you find that in, you know, a lot of people, um, Whitehead for definitely, where they're almost um, demonstrating the process with their language, you know, Um, because it's very hard to say, you know, it's very hard to like use a language that is developed linearly to talk about nonlinear or ecological um movement right
0: but we we're we're finding a way i think (laughs) we were reading a text on there's a process philosophy and biology recently together and there's somebody who mentioned within that text that um you know if we were really to like put our cards in the table and adopt the language that would help us think through these things, Uh, right? Everything's a verb all of a sudden, right? So the table is table, the cat is (laughs) catting. And and that just seems, it seems like we're fated not to get there. So we're stuck with this kind of language. Um, And we can, you you know, in certain instances where it feels somehow doable, like languaging, right? We use that kind of language somewhat. we get kind of reminders of these things, but uh, the, the likelihood that we're going to, you know, inculcate an entire culture within the sciences or beyond with this kind of uh, language—well, maybe it's you know, language does change, and you know, things that feel awkward in one generation don't feel so awkward in the next, and you know, who knows where it'll go? But it does. I again. mean, what, what's yeah. your what's your thoughts in terms of actually having to get to that point to really, you know, kind of come to grips with these? intuitions i guess in a very fundamental way that that would actually i think gear us back into the world in that way right i know there's indigenous cultures that will use that language much more um, Mm -hmm. right because they they as you said earlier on feel that they are part of the thing as much as they are observing the thing
1: i think that's a really great point i'm so glad you said this about the verb too because i think a lot of people and different disciplines are starting to kind of Talk in a similar way to that, to to say, yeah, everything really is a verb. Obviously, you know, like, and it kind of does go back to this way of how we make things into nouns in order to understand them, um, and even like our language, it's it's a verb. It's it's a dynamic thing. It's it's like we've created these kind of symbols and representations um, that we use to communicate, uh, but there's no actual object. That's you know. that's language either so yes i mean i think we're trying to find a way right to to kind of understand that everything is dynamic and ecological and a verb but the way that we are able to understand that thus far is to create these like very these models that pretend to be (laughs) static and nouns right um i think we're we're like all trying to kind of find a way a way to do that uh and actually just being able to become aware of it the way we are right now and the way many people are starting to talk about it that is itself like changing right in this scaled kind of manner like we are actually already something that's something new you know it's not new in the sense that like of course the first people in the world were already aware of it but it's new in that we're becoming uh able to talk about it um and and actually like look at it and observe it for what it is you know kind of in this way of the bird and the flight and then we observe the flight and the bird like we're there is a way in which we're be, we're reflecting on it differently um and that i think can change more practical things like scientific models political systems and probably it actually comes back to how we see ourselves which again is why i always try to come back to this ecological orientation because I think part of it is also we're trying to develop a different understanding of what we think a self is and an I. Like, um, you know, what is our kind of? Can we have different orientations? Can we? Uh, can we somehow um, not be the bat? You know, in terms of like uh, this this paper about you know, we, of course we can't be the bat. We can't think like a bat. But we can, we do develop tools and technologies to better understand what that sensory position is of, that we call a bat. And I think we also develop books and art and music as a way to try to better understand other human positions. And also in science, like a lot of science, we're trying to better understand what it's like to be the bat. What is it like to be the bat? But what is it like to be the tree? What is it like to be, you know... Like, this is kind of what we're all trying to do is how do we figure out how to share positions? And maybe that means that we're going to change how we define self. You know, maybe I'm not a separate I living in a, a skull. You know, maybe maybe that comes back to this embodied thing of waking up to our embodied, emplaced um, p- position in an encounter and trying to understand other other positions and that actually changes the overall dynamic doesn't it you know
0: mm-hmm. yeah fantastic i love the idea that it resonates with some something i had a someone on this podcast say before fred Cummins. he talked about you know how science is in some sense also a kind of wisdom tradition right and it's inquiring into the world around it from uh what it is to be an embodied being in a in a world surrounded by other embodied beings right and how you described what is it to be a tree and our science facilitating our understanding of that right for instance recently we have this kind of awareness of underground uh, root Michael. systems
1: yeah
0: yeah the root systems and the whole
1: the whole i forget what it's called the fungi yeah the, the fungi let's go with that.
0: <laughs> The, uh, the the mycelium. the world wide wide web the mycelium networks <laughs> that's what we're after mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah the you know we, we once we it it has an amazing kind of um, for and it's not just for people in the sciences right once people hear that there's this kind of sophisticated communication go on going on that has these kind of strange caring dimensions and acts not unlike how we act in our best moments or whatever. <clears throat> there's a kind of a, a degree of empathy that's extended to those uh, living systems as well, right? That isn't in in the absence of that knowledge, right? So it, it does seem in some sense that what we're doing with our sciences um, is kind of, in some weird way, re-enchanting the world, right?
1: Yeah, in a way, in a way, our awareness of the tree is the tree's <laughs> awareness of itself. If you really think of it in this kind of Ecological tradition, it doesn't have to be mystical at all. it's just if we really just grant something very simple that we are part of life, whatever we want to define life as, um, this kind of uh, mind or cognition, this way that we've become reflective isn't just a reflection on an eye that's inside of a skull and a like a brain, you know it's it's a reflection on what life what what this encounter is and i think fred cummings and this idea of the embodied this embodied framework right where that does actually uh i think there's something very beautiful about thinking of embodied as also a scaled um process right if we if we think of this embodied as a kind of framework what does it really mean to be embodied um that also starts to get at how are we able to share what we sense and how mm-hmm. does uh, how are um, particular positions able to become aware of the larger bodies they are a part of, right? So there's mm-hmm. not just one body. There's a cell body, but the cell body is part of a tissue, which is part of an organ, which is part of a human. And it's no different for us, right? We're embodied... Um, We're embodied in this kind of tradition that we talk about but we're also there's another kind of way in which we're becoming aware of larger bodies right which includes all that stuff with the the trees and how understanding how they work actually gives us insight into how we work you know this is this kind of fractalized nested scaling that's always going on where the more you become aware of your own trajectory which you only do as you said through discussion with other people right like the atoms all they don't mean anything unless they're in connection right that that is how we become aware of our own trajectory but we're also of course becoming aware of like patterns that are present ecologically you know and it goes both Mm -hmm. ways right we can become aware of ecological patterns that seem to be outside of us but then give us insight into our own um Our our own position, our own sensory experiences, which for me relates a lot to habits, right? And these regularities and a lot of the work that you do, actually, where we build up these habits and they're not, they're never individual habits. They're always somehow um, part of a larger, almost fractalized system of patterns. Uh, And yeah, I think that's very rich, right, to try to understand how all our many endeavors are trying to trying to kind of like discover these patterns and communicate about how they overlap and connect these different paths.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and fall into their production and reproduction and diversion and one term I've been playing around recently is a uh, simpraxis, right? This kind of doing together, this kind of I don't know that simpraxis.
1: Oh, that's nice. Yeah.
0: So so there's somebody had coined the term sympoesis as mm-hmm. a uh, kind of alternative to autopoesis. Oh, yeah. Wow. And I, and I was playing around with autopraxis, which I think is kind of helpful as well in the context of habits. And I was thinking this, the notion of sympraxis as a kind of doing together. That's funny because nice. I was thinking
1: of like, um, you know how we have like cyborgs. I was thinking of like symborgs <laughs> or or symbionts. Like I like this S-Y-M. Yeah but right, actually right. it's great you brought that up because autopoiesis and autonomy relates a lot to what we're talking about here too right and some of the problems with that where it's that it's that dissonance again of how do we have a part and a whole a part that's ecological and where you know i think some of that is what we were talking about like so the answer to some of that is understanding that's a heuristic that's autonomy is it's is like the atom it's like we need to do that to understand what is not like ever, you know, fully uh, autonomous. So the simpraxis yeah, kind of yeah. addresses that better.
0: Yeah, that was my hope for it. But I, I think someone like uh, De Paula Ezekiel might say, well, autonomy for them is is and always has been a relational notion. It's just to say that we can, in some sense, mark out a level of description or a, a kind of scale of interest at which something individuates that's, you know, worthy of explanation in its own right, if you will, Mm -hmm. Um, which is not to say that it doesn't participate in larger autonomies or that it's not constructed by multiple coordinating smaller autonomies, but that there's some sort of level of emergence there that's kind of relevant.
1: Right. I think that's very Um, important. But also just if we put it in a nestedness or ecological scale, you would realize that it's not the the distinction of autonomy could also be um uh that could be parameterized in a really different way from a different position for example so Mm -hmm. that you know it becomes a little bit more of a tool and a way that we're trying to understand things instead of this like very hardcore kind of this is you know everything is has to be seen like this autonomous system is is an autonomous system from every position maybe not
0: yeah. yeah, that's a, that's a good point actually, and a good reminder. We did we did we did a conference here recently, um, ECOG's conference was uh, a bunch of people from the embodied COGSA scene, whatever you call it, um, and uh, we had a question which uh, c- came from this text. Maybe you know the text, but it's like, can social interaction constitute social cognition? It was. Hannah Dieger, Ezekiel de Paolo, and Sean Sean Galler from 2010. Yes. And Sean was at the conference, so it was interesting to see him engage with these questions. But we had uh, the notion in that paper, they kind of tease out distinctions between contextual enabling and constitutive elements in any sort of phenomena of interest. And we we did some workshops where we kind of took these um, definitions looked at some of the examples they provided and then tried to look at phenomena <clears throat> through the lens of these different distinctions and see if we all agreed actually that there was, you know, these clear distinctions between them and it would, it, they are helpful distinctions. That's definitely true. But you, you start to realize much of whatever you is, you know, value in the distinction, uh, is informed by a lot of presuppositions, right? Like what is the scale of the phenomena or interest? Precisely the thing you said, right? If we broaden the system of interest that also includes this thing, all of a sudden this might be a contextual where it was previously a constitutive or whatever, whatever. Um, So there's always this kind of perspectival bracketing of some other sets of uh, interacting parts or components or whatever that we do. And I guess within well-defined scientific... Paradigms—it's uh, just that these are agreed upon up front in some sense, right? Like, you know, in a very med- reductivist, uh, mechanistic approach, um, everybody say working on that uh, particular problem has some set of background assumptions that are unquestioned and that are informing how they're able to, you know, carve out the space in, agree- in agreed terms. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, once you become conscious of that, it makes your scientific endeavors quite difficult right because you have to both agree where the phenomenon starts and ends and actually integrate this knowledge that you are standing in a kind of second order relationship to this thing and that you know it could be otherwise and so on
1: yeah wonderful i think that's such an important point also it's good to bring up gallagher cuz he's another important writer in all of this but yes um It is, it does come back to this, like how, how, that basically what you just described is the problem of interdisciplinarity, like trying to be interdisciplinary, Mm -hmm. right? How hard that is to kind of, because it's just, as you said, I think another important word here is development, right? And this also connects to these kind of habits and patterns. So in the same way that you're sort of born into an encounter and the way that you, your sensory body, um, Uh, deals with that encounter is going to build your patterns and your habits which we will call cognition you know that's a trajectory you're making your way and you have a trajectory and it's very similar when we think of disciplines right if you're coming from a very particular like they're not opposites but in in the past have been kind of called opposites like inactive versus something like um, a, a more analytic sort of style where you know not embodied like those are not opposites but they've been thought of as opposites. And, and the reason they feel like it is because you develop very differently. You read completely different texts. Sometimes it's changing now. But in, in different disciplines, you come up reading particular texts and you learn particular words, mean particular things. And another kind of trajectory could be using those same words in a very different way. Um, uh, so it becomes really hard when you're trying to be interdisciplinary and open up. And then, like, take in all these different trajectories because you have so much to learn, right? Like, you have to try to, as you were saying, distinguish what the trajectory is in order to just understand. Maybe you're talking about exactly the same thing. You're just using different words for it that you've learned from different texts. It happens a a lot, I think. Um, Sure, sure. But I think this is where, actually, we're in a good position now because of technology. Because it's becoming much easier um, to get a very good overview of a trajectory we can clarify these kinds of things you know just that we're becoming aware of them in the same way of you know becoming aware that everything is a verb that awareness actually can help us um, create technology that takes this into account right so that if you're just aware from the beginning that you're coming that you're both trying to solve a similar problem for example what an anthropologist and a philosopher or whatever. Um, but that you're going to come, you're coming at it from different trajectories. We can maybe create technology that helps us get a better view of what those trajectories are without melding them into the same thing, letting them be different, but not opposites. Right. And, and then we can start to see how they're kind of scaled or different, um, pattern. Like there's a lot of patterns that probably overlap there. Right. Um, And and we can get to this more ecological orientation instead of this like, okay, it's linear, it's either this or that. Um, Maybe there's just many different paths. There's a lot of overlapping patterns. And how we communicate about that is how we're going to create new trajectories and paths, right? So yeah, it's really important what you say. And I think it gets back to why technology is so important and why trying to create models and being able to think of nouns and these static things as um tools is so important right now because it really gets back to what you were just saying like trying to understand how we could be talking about similar things with very different vocabularies um of development you know that's kind of in a way if we can really address that like think of how many very very big problems uh in all disciplines that would help you know just a little bit of clarification and a little bit of uh, a little bit more help in connecting, you know, with
0: other people and other disciplines,
1: other ideas.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So many of these conversations, I think, find their way back to this place. Right. Mm -hmm. To me, to me, this place is it's a place about a kind of education of sorts. Um. How do we educate educate ourselves, as Zach Stein talks about, for you know a time between worlds, right? There's hmm. there's this kind of liminal space that has opened up with all of these possibilities and all these valid-looking frameworks and all these approaches and all these ways, and um, <clears throat> somehow we have to navigate actually the relationship between all those or mediate the relationship between all those. I don't know exactly what the education would look like, but it's. Um, when I think what it might include, and you know, we go back to the start of our conversation and we talk about maybe something that has enabled us, for better or worse, I'm not claiming <laughs> some sort of superiority here, right, but ha- has enabled us some sort of flexibility of uh, positioning. <clears throat> I think both of us agreed that part of that was the immersion in different types of communities and groups and practices. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe our technologies, you know, it's not so much about what the technology looks like or, you know, the precise ergonomics or it's about the affordances for these types of interactions, right? Because mm. maybe we were lucky. I don't know about your situation, but I just needed to leave home when I was like 17 and finished school, not my home, but my, you know, my area, I needed to get out. of so small and I just and I just kept traveling, <clears throat> um, but not everybody has that opportunity. I realized that was very privileged, even just to go the small distances I went. Um, but more people do have these opportunities to, you know, get access to these kind of rich communities and this diverse communities online, um, and maybe some way of encouraging and promoting that will be part of that educational piece. Mm-hmm.
1: I think I, there's so much there. I think, um, I mean. I'm not sure what made you decide you needed to move, but I imagine it was probably that you were reading certain things or listening to certain things, or there was probably some kind of motivational creativity that had inspired you to to want to see or experience the world a little bit differently. Um,
0: yeah. When I think about it now, it was a kind of loneliness, I guess. It was like a desire to connect with Other people and therefore certain parts of myself that weren't available in, you know, a very small rural community. I mean, I was surrounded by lovely people, but actually the the sense of like wanting this part of myself to be emerged or expressed or, you know. Yeah. Um, So that was the initial impulse, right? And and I didn't expect to, to realize this traveling as an education in and of itself, but that's precisely what it was.
1: Yes. And I think a lot of people feel that on different levels. Like we, we feel like, um, there are certain patterns, right. That resonate with us, um, more than others, right. Just as a position, I think whatever, mm. you, however you're kind of coming to the world, the way that you sense the world, you're going to resonate with different patterns. And, um, sometimes those patterns around you start to feel constraining, um, and that you need other ones, right? So what you say there makes me think of um, two different things, right? Like one, how do we create, um, how do we help each other understand that it's okay? Uh, This kind of insight I had that there are many different kinds of worlds, right? And there are many different ways of being. And, and And one isn't necessarily any better than the other. But maybe the way that you're experiencing your encounter you're going to have to go a different route than the ones the people around you are going that can be so scary and hard right and feel a lot of people I think just try to conform and go with the patterns they see around them even if they kind of don't resonate with those patterns because it's so hard to get this kind of insight which is what you were describing that actually there it's okay (laughs) to kind of try another trajectory. And it's not any better or worse. It's just that the people most intimate to you at this moment might not understand that trajectory. So you might have to feel lonely and go at it by yourself for a while. But then maybe you can find a way to kind of uh, connect those paths over time. I mean, I don't know if that's happened for you, but For me, I also, quite young, felt really isolated and lonely and so on because I had all these thoughts that I felt like the people around me didn't have or didn't care about. Um, You know, they were on different paths, perfectly fine paths, but I, for whatever reason, probably because of what I'd read and because I'd moved so much, I had these kind of other... (laughs) I was sensing the world a little bit differently, and I, I needed to follow other trajectories. And when I did that, I felt even more isolated from... The people around me but over time I found I don't know about you that you can find kind of paths that connect all of that and in a way that's kind of what you're trying to do that's what I'm trying I've been trying to do that's where you start to feel <laughs> your motivation you know it, it ends up coming yeah. back to that like you um yeah you want to connect and you're trying to find new ways to do it weirdly you have yeah. to be lonely at sometimes at first to kind of get get enough um, courage to kind of you know pursue that
0: yeah and weirdly you have to become a philosopher in order to actually make the integration happen yeah maybe
1: yeah maybe I mean maybe not in a traditional way but
0: (laughs) yeah I I don't think it's a necessity for those people out there who are you know moving amongst the paths but um, no maybe you
1: become a musician or an artist or maybe you study trees I think there's many different ways To kind of address it, for us, it's been philosophy.
0: (laughs) Right, right. And my friend Mag always talks about me research is me search, uh, and I think that's (laughs) it is right. It's
1: yeah, but we're ecological, so you know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, totally. The the the. I, I want to kind of tell you a story that was kind of at the at the basis of my phd work because i think it speaks to um to what we're talking about so so when when i left school and moved around a lot and i was playing music and i was uh trying to busk on the streets and make money that way and work in different jobs and all that kind of thing so i found myself like in the company of very very different communities from time to time and you know i'd have to work as a laborer to make money so then I'd be away from the arts community but then I'd be you know hanging around with hippies and artists and so on and you know always moving between them and anyway I, I became like <laughs> I became sensitive to the fact that like I was falling into ways of being with these people that kind of reflected the norms of the group right and it would happen relatively quickly even you know I'd take up a gait or my accent would change a little bit or whatever it was and um, anyway, long story short, this happened for years and years and eventually went back to college and, you know, got this kind of insight into philosophy and psychology and uh, didn't see the kinds of tools there to help me make sense of what I was trying to make sense of, um, which was this kind of social constituents of cognition and how I would just fall into patterns of being together. Um, anyway, I went back to Australia at some point point, started working on a mine just to make money to go and do my master's. And um, I found myself in this situation often where I would like be in the company of different people with whom I have like mutually exclusive histories of interaction, interacting, you know, they don't know each other. They both know me and now we're all present together. Mm -hmm. And actually I'm quite different around different people. And, uh, you know, the sense of not knowing what to do, not knowing who I am, and the whole, like, notion of self is kind of challenged that in that, motion, in that, in that instance, right? Uh, and it was that that I came back from Australia with. It was like, this is something, right? This is something weird and interesting. And, you know, psychology, as I understand it, doesn't really account for it. And I kind of shopped around a bunch of people uh, to do my master's with. And uh, yeah, it was Fred who kind of lit up when I brought this explanation or this example to him. You know, there was something in it. There was a starting point, and it was something we can all share, and something we can kind of recognize. Yeah, that's happened to me too. You know, I, I talked to everybody about it during my PhD, and people had a really visceral reaction to this kind of experience. They're like, "Yeah, that's the worst." You know? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm having party, it right now party. as you talk.
1: I understand. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's so yeah, true. So it's so true that we. It makes sense, right? I mean, you you probably know this. I mean, you studied, you you probably developed this, but just hearing you talk like you, you really do connect uh, to different trajectories depending on who you're around. So you do kind of become, you're not a different person, but different parts of you are coming out and you're expressing yourself differently. And it can be so alienating, right? If you don't know how to deal with that, if you For example, just like, I mean, I think in a very simple way, people experience it when they like go away to college or they move to a new town or something and you, you develop new patterns, it's new sensory stuff, it's new conversations, it's new books. And then you go back home and you feel like completely like an alien or like you can't connect, you know? Um, But yeah, this happens in a lot of different ways in life. It's it's fascinating that that you connected that to, to habits and then did you see this kind of social or interactivism or inactivism as a kind of possible way of, of, of addressing that, of, of being able to yeah, hold all it, those plate positions in one space?
0: Yeah. So that, so, that, you know, the accounts of social cognition that were kind of on the table were things like simulation theory, 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 um, <clears throat> these very cognitivist positions and that didn't, entail the kind of sense of resonance that was so powerful in that experience you know the kind of like well my body's doing it before anything else I'm just drawn into it I can't help it right absolutely Um, it didn't that those experiences don't like they force you into this reflective position when you're in that like double experience right right, with with the the two people. people but when you're just present to each of those people on their own you just fall into the patterns And there's a kind of intercorporeality that takes up whatever it is that was there previously. So, yeah, an action and participatory sense making and coordination dynamics at least helped me to, you know, start making sense of some of that. But I I guess why I I thought it might be interesting to introduce, at least in part, is because I think, you know, when we talked about the educational piece and the moving and the, you know, and so on and so on, like it's it's difficult and uncomfortable to put yourself in some of these positions but actually in a sense the kind of uh, the meta stability that's necessary to be able to navigate the kind of perspectival position or the kind of world between worlds that we're talking about Mm -hmm. can be kind of practiced right it's like how do you hold the awkward space you know even if you're seeking its reduction in some sense, right? You're moving with time in the direction in which you're better able to collaborate or cooperate. Um, For a time being, you might have to hold this very awkward space. And I think in these kinds of interactions, if we allow ourselves, it can kind of give rise to that. But much of our technologies today seem to be like streamlining the kind of awkwardness out of much of the interaction. And I wonder... Um,
1: Mm, that's a good point
0: yeah yeah I've seen an article I saw saw an article some while ago that was kind of took all these various technologies that have gained popularity from you know delivery services to uh, I don't know like anyway just saying that the kind of unifying feature of a lot of these technologies unfortunately was that it was minimizing social interaction and the awkwardness that comes with it
1: yeah this is a really good point because that's kind of what happens right with most social media where you just sort of get into a trajectory that then be it is you don't see it as a trajectory it's supposed to be like the whole kind of space right um Mm -hmm. i mean two two things that kind of come up for me is one what you're saying i mean there is also this kind of meditative tradition that's like become a lot more um present i mean at least in like this western culture that i'm part of you know now there's this kind of big awareness of mindfulness and meditation. And I think that is on a, on a hopeful note, kind of the opposite of the siloing of social media where it's, we are, there is also a way in which we're trying to kind of understand how to hold the space, how to just kind of be aware of, of, of our mind. And that's kind of a way of doing what you said, like learning how to hold the awkwardness and learning that it's okay. I mean, I think a lot of it is just being, um, like, it took me a while, I don't know about you, to even find people and find or, or just notice that actually there's a lot of people who are trying to hold that awkwardness and mm. who are are trying to kind of, like, have many different selves, you know, their scientific self, their philosophical self, their spiritual self um, in one space. Like, some of it's just this awareness that, there's not only one way of making, of navigating. And it's okay to hold yes. the space and and play around with it a little bit in the way that we were talking about earlier, where everything is a verb, but you can kind of look at these different uh, models and play around with them and, and learn from them. I think there, there's that kind of thing happening now, but then the social media is the opposite of that in a way, or not only social media, but a lot of the way we think of technology, the way we use technology um, does the opposite. It tries to streamline you. I mean, technology itself, the way it's created is to kind of addict you to it. And that is very much tying you to a trajectory, not opening space so that you see that there's many different possibilities. Um,
0: right, right.
1: Yeah. And for me, the that goes back to what we talked about a bit earlier too, was this idea of how we've objectified technology. So we think of it as something separate from us and somehow that allows us to create things that do this, that narrow, narrow us rather than open up the space because we've just said, oh, it's, it's just technology. Um, it's, you know, but no, actually (laughs) that's kind of, um, you know, it's, it's something we're responsible for. If we're going to create technology that limits us and, um, close down our understanding of, this op- the possibility of open space and many trajectories. Um, we should we should realize we're we're making those decisions right. Like um, we're actually the ones narrowing our <laughs> we're narrowing our our trajectories. Um, it's not just that there's like technology that's doing that, you know. So I guess that gets back mm. to why I want to think of technology as an action that's actually very much connected to cognition not as an mm. object, but I don't know what you, do you see there some distance between these kind of different movements of like towards um, meditation and mindfulness and then also like this very, very intense focus on technology in terms of social media when it comes to identity? Mm. Or how do you think of technology there, you know? in general, like objectified or...
0: (laughs) No, I think we've, you know, tried to um, adopt, you know, a kind of anthropological stance, a constitutive stance to technology and cognition. Um, I guess for a long time I was... um, Somewhat alienated, I think, from my technological relation. And I think that's quite common, especially in the West. In Japan, that's less so, I think. Um, <clears throat> and there's probably good historical reasons and so on for that in Japan. But they definitely have a slightly different relationship to technology or quite different relationship to technology here. But yeah, I think there was some strange sense of technology as a thing over there. It's an object that I engage with at some point moments in my life, but it's not really something that interests me that much. And it certainly didn't interest me philosophically for a long time. And then COVID came around and then my work had been on, you know, recurrent interaction and social dynamics and embodied intersubjectivity. And all of a sudden it was like, well, kind of like keeping up this rich social life, even in the absence of any of this, like, you know, unmediated face to face interaction. And I was like, "Oh, yeah, this technology thing really is kind of important, isn't it?" And, uh, you know, and then once you start paying attention to it, it's kind of everywhere, and you start to see just how constitutive it is, and how much of our cognition is scaffolded by these technologies and so on. Um, so, I'm really interested at this point to to think about, like, it's very easy, and it happens a lot within embodied approaches, and phenomenological approaches, and critical approaches to to just denigrate technology uh, on the whole, almost, like just this strange thing that we don't really care about. And I think mo- most of that comes from this alienated position to it. Um, but then, you know, thinkers like Gilder- Gilbert Simendon, um, <clears throat> you know, help you understand or grasp, or even Stiegler, you know, people who've worked in this area for a long time, grasp just the degree to which anything that's emerging or evolving as part of me or as part of our relationship is already prefigured by the te- techniques that that work in that relationship also and are part of it in some sense. And once you grasp that, right, there's some sense of, well, I can't be alienated and I can't just live in a critical relationship to it. I have to kind of take the bull by the horns, if you will, and say, well, how can we you know, configure this or move this towards um, or make it part of our own way making? Right. In a way that we want to move towards something that's ameliorative or better for us or, you know, better for the planet or whatever it is. <clears throat> and there's a kind of solutionism there. And I know that's true. And I can't get away from that. I'm a kind of, you know, an engineering type person, maybe just from my background, you know, working on mechanics and stuff like that. Um but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think solutionism can come in many different forms. And, you know, if you're not providing the solutions, I mean, somebody else is providing something and it may not be as uh, as much of a solution as might come from, you know, genuinely trying to do that. Um, so, yeah, my, my interest in technology at this point is thinking about, you know, m- kind of mediators of well-being, something like psychological flexibility. You know, we, we talked about this at the at the workshop and, you know, how technology might be an enabler of that kind of thing as well. And, you know, once you turn your attention to it, interesting thing comes forth, right? So even, for instance, thinking about breakdowns in the technological mediation and how people who've engaged with technology for a long time are much more patient around those breakdowns. For instance, we had two or three breakdowns today, which would have been, you know, catastrophic for my parents, right? <laughs> oh, right, <laughs> but, yeah. But but for us who are now, you know, our cognition is, is partly constituted by these types and forms of mediation. We have a kind of built up a tolerance and a flexibility for them, which I think probably has some generalizability, right? So that's just one example. But it's like, well, we just think about these things as annoying breaking down machines and, you know, they're not working when we want them to work. And it's like, well, maybe they're actually, you know, have these other dimensions or possibilities built in as well.
1: Yeah, which is kind of what you were saying too, about being able to see there's many different routes and paths and and ways to do something so if you just think there's only one way for something to work then you're going to panic probably more than if you just if you <laughs> already have the experience well okay that didn't work so we can try this and and it'll be fine mm-hmm. but i really like what you were saying about um, the technology because it it reminds me of uh, you know i think i said at the beginning like i've 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 come at like these topics in a kind of unorthodox way which a lot of that has had to do with writing about um, issues of transportation, you know, like um, how, but it, it does connect back to this way making because uh, yeah, how we move in the world and like the technology we create to help us better move in the world. For me, that really is um, a matter of how we develop mind, you know? Um, I mean, if you think of a bicycle or a car or an airplane and how this has changed all this Social connection, right? How the atoms connect, how we can mm. communicate and who and what and where we can communicate. It becomes, for me, incredibly fascinating, right? To think about how this technology, like how we create different ways to move, actually creates different co- cognitive paths, you know, different possibilities for mind. Um, and that's very true now in terms of virtual ways. You know, like we're now creating these kind of technologies that allow us to connect and communicate like we're doing now in ways that are remarkable, right? As remarkable as the first airplane in terms of space and time to go back to space and time, you know, like we're really changing our connection with space and time right now. And with the possibility of um, understanding different trajectories, different ways in life, and you can't like separate the technology from the way that's changing our cognition. Um, and I think becoming aware of that is actually, you know, very helpful in terms of thinking about what kind of technology do we really want to create? Because we're creating our our possibilities for connection and our possibilities for thinking and feeling um, and remembering. So, like, if we want to create technologies that just addict kids when they're eight years old and make them think that they have to, like, fit to a very specific kind of uh, way of being in the world, look like a particular way and, and all of these things, um, we can create those I mean, and make a lot of money. But maybe we would also like to give those kids technology that helps them understand, oh, there's like many different ways of being in the world. I can orient many different ways. I can call myself many different things and try out different possibilities of of self, um, in a safe space. Right. And, and not Mm -hmm. feel so judged. I mean, that's what you and I Mm kind of wanted. And we went, went our routes to find a way to, to find our own path and then reconnect with others. Um, so like, I'm sure, you know, I hope that we can create technology that helps facilitate that, um, for those kids that are, you know, going through that right now, it feels like it's a lot harder if you don't have someone to tell you it's okay to look at different trajectories. Um, If you just get on social media in your little small world and, and everyone says something bad about you, um, it feels a little bit like what you were just saying with the panic that our parents might have with technology where it's just like, Oh my God, like my life is over because all these people hate me. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it would be great if we could find a way to open that space. Right. And Um, it's a cognitive space, but I think probably the way we're going to open it is through, through like new forms of technology.
0: Yeah. I love that. I love that. And, and it, I think it's quite inspiring, actually. I think, I think we've got somewhere in this conversation that's (laughs) quite interesting and it's going to inspire. We have a lot in common, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm conscious of time here and I'm conscious of the fact that I'm also running out a bit of steam because it's yeah late it's been a while a
1: couple of hours we've been talking now
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it flies by um so maybe we'll wrap it up Andre but you know I'm happy to have you back on I really enjoyed our conversation yeah I'd love to talk uh, to
1: you again it's been great
0: <laughs> yeah well let's put it out there see how it, how it sits for people see if we get some feedback in yeah we can always do it again, but do you have a do you have some contacts for people to get in touch um, uh
1: yeah i mean you can look at my website and there 's my email address and everything it 's just my name a n d r e a h i o t t dot net or dot com there's also um this ecological orientation website that sort of it's just getting started, but i would love any feedback or like um yeah i'm trying to connect with a lot of different kinds of ideas of what ecological is so you can also that's ecological okay nice
0: and you mentioned you had a couple of books which we never read really yeah i have a bunch of books
1: it. too but you can also find those on my website and stuff
0: okay awesome well we'll we'll link to some of that stuff in the show notes anyway okay um But yeah, just say thanks again, Andrea. It was really great chatting to you. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Mark.
1: It really you opened up a lot of new ideas for me. So thanks.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Okay, bye, Andrea. Bye.